Everybody knows how much I love to introduce guests. And everybody knows how much. And especially guests who are not guests, who sat in this room and listened to Rav Aaron's Shear, or Bodrim of our Yeshiva. So the, a 30-second thought that, you know, we're in the Parshas now, we're in the Parshas Truma. So we think of the Beis HaMikdash as this beautiful, of the Mishkan, this beautiful, completed place with all these beautiful kalim in there. But the Parsha is really about building it, right? But we never, we never actually think of B'Tzalah like sitting on the floor piecing things together, like side A and side B and taking tools. We just skip that stage. But it turns out to build Klal Yisrael and to build an institution, you need people who can dream big, and you also need people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and take out their tools and actually build things. And it's incredible to me that Rabbi Penner is one of the few people who really represents both. He has a vision for what YU should look like, but that vision is not too big for each of you guys, if you're there, to walk into his office and chop a schmooze and ask him for help, and he follows up. And that's a pretty rare thing, and it's a schus for us to have him in YU. A, whether we're going to YU or not, YU matters to all of us. But B, to have a person like Rabbi Penner there for the people who go and to, to continue what we're doing here in Ayeshiva, I think it's just an incredible thing for all of us. It's a great source to ask Rabbi Penner to speak for a little bit. Thank you very much. As I mentioned, anytime I uh, speak uh, in this room, it's, I guess, your Rabbeim, who are also Talmidim in this room, are used to it more often. Very, very intimidating for me to spit, sit in that uh, facing this direction in this room. I'm used to watching this direction and still being terrified uh, standing in this direction. But uh, I could still remember the spot that I actually got my one question right in the Lichensing Shia. That was the goal. Basically, if you were Shana Bet and even if you were Shana Gimel, you couldn't go home with any self respect unless you could answer one of Lichensing's questions correct in Hebrew in front of the whole Shia. And as it got like past Pesach, Shanabet, so you really got nervous because like, you, you know, you're going to go home, uh, it's going to be terrible, you're not going to be able to do something. I could literally still remember the answer that I got right. It was that, it wasn't a big deal, but I was actually so shocked that I got it right and I said it in Hebrew in front of everybody. So uh, a lot of memories, uh, a lot of very powerful memories from this uh, from this room. Thank you for that introduction. We certainly do try very hard. It was very nice to hear from some of the Ramim um, that, uh, amongst other things, that the fellows in, in, in YU are, uh, are really largely very, very happy, which is something that we're really uh, working towards, that everybody should be able to find their place. I'm happy to talk to any of you afterwards. I'll be here for a little while in the base medrash uh, about the opportunities. YU is for some. It's not for all. Our goal is to really try to create a place uh, where as many people as possible can find what they're looking for in the next step. I was asked to speak on an interesting topic. I usually speak about tefillah and the inyane tefillah, different things in Ashkafa. Um, I was asked to speak uh, for uh, Rosh Chodesh Adar about uh, chizuk and the zman and something. I couldn't tell exactly what it was. So uh, I try to, you know, I was asked to, you know, very special people here. So when they ask me to do something, I'll try to do that. Um, perhaps to do something a little different than those of you who have heard me in the past, um, to try to speak, maybe even to speak a little more from the heart, although I find that's never a bad thing, especially when guys are in the yeshiva that you were in, uh, oh my, 30, a long time ago, um, a long, long time ago. 
to try to speak about that. The fact is that Rosh Chodesh Adar Aleph, Rosh Chodesh Adar Rishon, is a very interesting thing because it's a, it's a, it's a tease. It's a tease. Adar generally has connotations of Purim, and Purim has connotations of Pesach, and Pesach has connotations of going home, or perhaps having Chodesh Nisan and being off, and you sort of made it to the Chorvzman. It's a, it's a very different experience. Someone should do a study at some point on the experience of fellows who have a uh, Chorvzman that has an in an Ibr year and not in an Ibr year. It, it, it's you sort of at Rosh Chodesh Adar, but it's almost like, okay, but we just threw in another month there. Purim's not coming this month. Purim's coming another month. And I want to try to speak to you sort of about getting through a long Chorvzman getting through the longest possible Chorifzman with an Ibriyur, what it means to be on a, on a Rosh Chodesh Adar that's not almost the end, but is actually an invitation to spend another whole month. Adar, you'll see, Adar, those of you Shana Alf, the guys Shana Bet guys know, once you already hit Adar Beis, eh, you know, there's stuff going on, and Purim, and, but Adar Rishon is sort of a false positive. So I want to speak a little bit about trying to, to remain strong as, uh, as the year goes on and as, uh, as you get, uh, as you're still pretty far from the end. Um, when I was here, so my madrich for the, uh, for the American program was uh, Rabbi Josh Berman, who uh, now is in Barilan, Barilan, Hebrew, Barilan, works in Tanakh in Barilan, he comes out with Sfarim all the time, it was really his chus to have, uh, to have Rabbi Berman as a madrich. So he has some fascinating pieces. A book which uh, a fascinating sefer on the Mishkan called the Temple, Kenhu, called the Temple on the Mishkan and the Mikdash, and the symbolism of the various things in the in the Mishkan and the Mikdash. And he says a lot of gush kind of Torahs about what it represents, what the Mishkan represents, what the what the different kalim represent, and he speaks a lot about the Sinai. Mishkan connection, which of course is not Josh Berman's, not Rabbi Berman's, it's the Ramban's. The Ramban speaks of fact, about the fact that the Mishkan was supposed to be a continuation of Harsina. Not only, not like Rashi, not only does that mean that the Mishkan was the Chathila, the goal of the Mishkan was to take the Matan Torah experience and have a moving, a rolling Matan Torah exhibit, so not only does it mean that it comes in order, it wasn't, it wasn't a result of the Cheta Ego. But also, says the Ramban, if you look at the pieces of the Mishkan, if you look at the inside of the Mishkan, you can see many things that resemble Sinai. You have, after all, the Aron is at the heart of the Mishkan, which is an interesting thing, because usually you think of Mishkan and Kobanos, but at the heart of the Mishkan is the Aron. And of course... You have there on Yom, on Yom Kippur, Kohen Gadol goes lifnai v'lifnim, he has smoke. Why is there smoke in there? Because there was an Anam Kaveh, Allah. And in fact, you have the Kruvim on top of the Aron, which are gold, which in many times, especially in, in the Tanakh, is the closest thing you have sort of to, re, to, to, uh, to flashing. It looks like the lightning that's going on at Sinai. So really what you have is a, is a building that's supposed to take the experience that we had at Sinai. Sinai stays where it is. Sinai can't come with us. It's not a rolling rock from which we're going to get Mayim. Sinai is going to stay where it is. It's not going to be holy anymore. 
And instead, we're going to have this thing that represents the Sinai experience. Most importantly, what happened at Sinai? You have the voice of HaKadosh Baruch Hu coming through, and so too Moshe Rabbeinu gets the voice of HaKadosh Baruch Hu coming through. Very nice. But the Mishkan has walls. You see, if I were to build a Mishkan that was supposed to represent Matan Torah, I would build a platform. Doesn't that make more sense? Wouldn't it make more sense if the Mishnah was supposed to represent Sinai? So make some sort of a platform. Ah, you get, whatever it was, it wasn't harder or easier to put together than the Mishkan. Why would there be walls? Why would there be walls on the Mishkan if there were no walls at Sinai? It was an open-air experience. Now the reality is that there's actually a cover as well. But it's interesting that the Tcheles in the cover may have somewhat represented the sky. And in fact, we know the Gemara tells us that the clasps that held together the pieces kind of look like stars in the midnight sky. It could very well be that the cover of the Mishkan was actually there to look like the sky. Yes, you had the Aron in there. You didn't want to leave it out open to the elements. But what are these walls? So there's a fascinating piece in the Meshachachma. You always hear about fascinating pieces in the Meshachachma, and then you're like, where do you find the fascinating this, this is a fascinating piece in the Meshachachma. The Meshachachma says like this. It says, in Parshas Yisro, it says, V'higbalta esa'am saviv. V'higbalta esa'am saviv. What is V'higbalta? So the pshat, the way we understand the Pasuk, is V'higbalta esa'am saviv. You should put up a barrier for the people. There was some sort of barrier. But the Meshachachma says it means something else. The Igbalta is Am Saviv, listen closely, means that the Am is supposed to be the Gvul. The people were supposed to be the Gvul. The Meshachachma says that, that, that Kedusha doesn't land in an open space, in an uncontained space. For Kedusha to come in, there has to be a certain type of a wall. What became the walls of Sinai? The Jewish people standing around Sinai. We were the walls of Sinai. We actually formed the barrier that allowed the Kedusha to come in. And fascinatingly, he says, that sanctified us. We became part of the structure of Harsinai. We were the walls. And says the Meshachachma, we are also the walls of the Mishka. Do you ever see the diagrams of what the, what, the, what the posts look like? What the beams look like in the Mishkan? What do they have at the bottom of each beam? How did the beams stand up? They were in like a socket. It's really heavy silver socket. It looked like a plug. What was at the bottom of each beam? It looked like this. The Meshachachma says every single one of those beams represents one of us. So the next time you look at the Mishkan, the Mishkan is Matan Torah. In the middle is the fire and the smoke and the voice of the Rebona Shalom. On the outside are all these people standing shoulder to shoulder, which is supposed to represent the Jewish people. I find that a very fascinating image. Once you hear that, it's a little hard to look at the Mishkan pictures and that kind of think a little differently about them. That, that's just us. But it also means something else. The Mishkan Rabosai was the first institution, was the first building in Jewish history. And it's fascinating that the first institution, the first building, was an illusion. 
It was an illusion in two ways. First of all, because as we said, it really just represents a bunch of people standing on the outside. You know why else it was an illusion? It was an illusion because they really weren't walls. Now, of course, you'll tell me the reason why they weren't walls is because they'd be too heavy to carry. They were pretty heavy to carry as is. There really weren't any walls around the Mishkan. It was just a bunch of beams standing next to each other. And those beams are supposed to represent us, which is a very powerful message, I think. For about 25 years, I served as a shul rabbi. And one of the things that you hear as a shul rabbi, one of the things that you hear as an administrator all the time, is it would be great if the shul did this. And I hear that in YU all the time. Why doesn't YU do this? Why doesn't YU... And, and when I was the student, I was the one who complained. I still have all the letters I wrote to Rabbi Lamb. Why doesn't YU do this? Why doesn't YU do that? The first institution in Klal Yisrael, the first building in Klal Yisrael says, there is no Mishkan. It's an illusion. You know what the Mishkan is? It's a bunch of people standing next to each other. There is no shul. I always say, who's the shul? Who's the, why doesn't the shul have more programs for youth? I said, you mean the, the, the walls? The lights? What, who are you talking to? Who's the shul? You're the shul. What a powerful message. That the Mishkan, from the very beginning, the powerful was, there's no Mishkan. There's people. There are advantages of being in a big yeshiva and advantages of being in a small yeshiva. It's interesting, I'm hanging out with the fellows now in Gross. Gross is like a hundredth the size of the crowd in the base Madrash. In YU, I come from the Gluck base Madrash where there are 500 guys learning and come to the Gross Kolo and and by Vagan, there are 30 guys, though. There are advantages of being in a small place and being in a, in, a, in a big place. There's a power that you have here. There's a power. I'll, still, I'll never forget the, the, the davening Yom Kippur here in Yeshiva. There's a power of being in a place of this size and with so many people learning. And so, but there's also a, a sense that you kind of lose the importance of every one of you. You don't realize, you kind of think it, that there's this base medrash, this famous base medrash, the one you see on the sweatshirts and on the, on the, on the, on the, on the pictures and on all the fundraising brochures, there's, there's, there's this base medrash. There's not a base medrash, it's every single one of you. And it's very easy, especially during a long chorev's man, to kind of imagine that the place keeps going and it keeps going until Nisa and then it gives it off. Even for you guys who are Shana Aleph, Yeshiva Haratzion is you. It's just a bunch of you. When the building stands here empty during Benes Manim, it's nothing. It doesn't have the level. It's not, it's not the yeshiva. It's very easy over a long chorus line. It's very easy in any big institution to kind of feel like the institution goes on without me. The institution comes down to every single one of you. It matters not just that the base medrash is full, but that you keep going in the base medrash. It's a really scary piece in Rav Pincus's writings about the uh, young Narayim. It's a really scary piece. He talks about it under the Sala Tokyo. He talks about the example of parents who, uh, who uh, you know, we're told that we all come one by one in front of the Rebona Shalom. He says, what does it mean that we come one by one in front of the Rebona Shalom? <coughs> he gives an example of uh, parents who send their kid off to Yeshiva. So they send their kids off to Yeshiva. They send their kids, uh, they send their kids off, to, off to the Gush. They, st- they try calling. It turns out the cell phone isn't working. What's going on? Right? Where's my Moshe? Where's my Moshe? I don't know. So uh, eventually, they can't get in touch with them. They're getting really panicked. So they decide they're going to come to Gush. They're going to try to find them. So they come to Gush. 
And uh, yeah, they meet, uh, you know, Rabbi Danny Ryan standing there. It's Gavaldic. Look at that. He comes. He says, they say, how's my Moshe doing? They say, Moshe, Moshe Goldberg. Oh, Moshe Goldberg. How's Moshe Goldberg doing? And he says, what a great year this year. This is the best year ever we've had in Moshe. They said, but how's Moshe? Is he coming to Seder? You should see how many guys come to Seder. Tell me. Walk up those steps, and you're going to see the place is totally packed. But how's Moshe doing? Americans? I got a new crew. Ten guys just came from South America. This is the best thing we ever had. And they said, I could care less how Gush is doing. I want to know how Moshe is doing. That's what the Rebona Shalom says about everyone. I think that the Rebona Shalom cares that there are a lot of guys in afternoon Seder. The Rebona Shalom says, when it says, with Mahavir one by one in front, he wants to know I'm an afternoon Seder. He wants to know where I am. Every one of us has the right, but unfortunately the responsibility, to look ourselves as if we're the only son of the Rebona Shalom. He's incredible that he can pay attention to everybody, but he can also pay attention to me. And the fact that everybody else is in the base medrash by 9.30, but I just can't get up, and it's hard to get up. And I think that at 9.30, where is the Rebona Shalom looking? He's there, and I feel bad that I'm not there, but that's where he is. That's not where he is, because he's my father. He's looking at me and wondering why I'm not there, not looking at them and so proud of them. He didn't come all the way from America to see everybody else in Gush. He wants to know if I'm there. And if I'm and if I'm there on a particular morning. Many years ago I was uh, starting out as a shul rabbi. We were facing a particular family crisis in our family. We have a child with a disability. And uh, I remember getting up and speaking on, uh, on Rosh Hashanah that year try to explain to the community that we had a child with special needs. So um, I talked about the Kriya Satora for Rosh Hashanah. I talked about the fascinating Kriya Satora of Rosh Hashanah where you have a parent and the parent is told that uh, they have to pick up and go on a journey and they take their child and they go for a long journey with the child and the child almost ends up dying. And then there's a voice from Shemayim, and the child ends up living and becoming the father of a great nation. Have you ever thought about the fact that the two Kriyas HaTorah and Hashanah, the story of Yishmael and Haran, the story of Avraham and Yitzchak, are exactly the same story? parent one day finds themselves uprooted from the house. They don't expect to be doing that that day, but they end up just wandering with their child into the wilderness, so to speak. And it goes on and on, and the child almost dies. And then a heavenly voice comes out, and the child ends up living. What's the difference between the story of Ishmael and Hagar and the story of Akedas Yitzchak, the most famous story, the most incredible story in our tradition, Akedas Yitzchak, and Nebuch, the story of Yishmael and Hagar. 
I'll tell you what I think the difference is. And I'll tell you why Avraham stays there through the end, while Hagar says, I can't watch. The difference is, is that when Hagar leaves Avraham's house, she assumes that the cameras are still rolling at Avram's house. And the producer is saying, spotlight on Avram's house, because why in the world would it matter where Hagar is going with Yishmael? Hagar is now off stage. Hagar is not being videoed. Hagar is a footnote in history. And the camera is on Avram's house. Hagar assumes that what she's doing is irrelevant whereas it's becoming something that you and I will never be, a story in Chumash. She assumes that because her life isn't going exactly the way right now, because she's in a rut, that the spotlight, that the cameras are rolling back in Avram's house, and she's just going over where she's going. Avram at least understands and knows, because the Kaddish Baruch told him, that the spotlight is on him. That many times during a difficult zman, during a difficult time in our life, during a difficult place in our life, where we assume that everybody else is doing what they're doing, and I'm just kind of falling behind. And that the Ribbonah Shalom spotlight is with everybody else in the base Madrash. Don't limit the ability of the Kaddish Baruch Hu to have multiple cameras. The tragedy of Yishmael the tragedy of Hagar giving up on Yishmael is because she assumed that the camera wasn't rolling anymore. She assumed that somewhere else, that's where it matters. Not over here with me. I'm, I'm, I'm messing up. Everybody else is doing what they're supposed to be doing. I'm not having a good day. Why do we assume that? Why can't we assume that? Because Shmarfel's camera is on us wherever we are, no matter what we're doing. I had to explain to my shul why sometimes, as the rabbi of the shul, I couldn't be in shul because I had a son who was making noise. I had to take my son out. Do you know how many times I've davened in the room next door to whatever it is because I was taking care of my son. And for a long time, I thought that the Kaddish Baruch Hu's camera was on the shul and I'm just on the outside. And then I remembered that the Kaddish Baruch Hu's camera is wherever we are because we're his only son. It's very easy when one is in a difficult place, when one is down, when one can't get it together to think that what matters is everybody who's there. What matters is whether I'm doing it. What matters is whether I'm keeping it. Because Baruch Hu has enough attention to care completely about how I'm doing it. And to root for us, and to try to be there for us. When I was here... I couldn't imagine quoting the Sefer Baal Shem Tov Torah. But now it turns out I follow the, the Twitter feed. Okay, everybody follows the Gush Twitter feed. And uh, it turns out Rabbi Tarragon's talking about Hasidus all the time. So uh, it's not so weird. I couldn't imagine. Uh... So there's a very powerful piece in the Baal Shem Tov Torah, in Parshish Bracious. The Baal Shem Tov says that there's such a thing, he, say, he talks about an Indian, listen closely, of katnus and godless. Katnus and godless. It says there are times in our life which are yemei katnus, and there are times in our life which are yemei godless. The yemei godless is the time when everything is going well, we have ava, everything's well. I'm kind of the base of Madrash, I actually, I'm awake for the whole Seder, 
the sugya seems interesting to me, I got the right chavrusa, everything's going well, the food is even okay, everything is like, wow, I can't believe it, I'm here, everything's going well, and then there are you make katnas. When I come, and I'm stuck on a tosfus, and it's just boring to me, and I cannot stay awake. And my chavrus is busy with something else, and his parents came and took him out, but I didn't get a visit. There you make katnas. And he makes a very powerful statement that how we deal, listen closely, how we deal with the yimei katnas in our lives is even more important than how we deal with the yimei godless in our lives. The true test of how we will succeed, and I think I'm beginning to understand this better as I become older and older, the true test of our success is not how we do on our best days, but how we do on our worst days. Not how we do when everything is going well, but how we stop ourselves from falling back when things aren't going well. How we hold ourselves, how we hold ground. When you're mountain climbing, the goal is to take a couple of steps and hold, find a way to stay where you are. That time when you're staying where you are is one of the most important pieces, not to fall, not to go any further down, not to sink. And it's part of life. If Cook points out in Aroda Chuva, if Cook points out in Aroda Chuva this this concept that we know that uh, our rabbis tell us that this world was destroyed and rebuilt seven times, right? This was uh, the seventh or whatever. Before we got to this world, the Kaddish Baruch who kept destroying worlds and starting all the good. It's really depressing. It might happen any day now. Who knows what Gilgul we are of the whole thing. Of Cook says, why? What is such a? What do we gain by knowing whatever that means? Chazal say that worlds were built and destroyed. <laughs> what does the nafka mean to me today? He says because the Kach built into the world that things go wrong and you put them back together. It's literally part of the creation that we have moments of highs and we also have these moments of lows. Just to, to conclude, to go back to the image that we had at Matan Torah. So the Baal writes like this, What does it mean that we were Besach Tesahar? Baruch a few weeks ago in Yisrael, he raised the mountain above us. Shamati mi pimori, he's quote, the, the, the author is quoting the Baal Shem Tov, why did God put the mountain over our heads? Why was the original Kabbalah Satora experience one of having a mountain over our heads? The original Kabbalah Satora experience should be standing on the mountain with a Lachayim, with everything. It's great, and food and drink, the whole thing. Isn't that what Torah is about? Why did we receive the Torah standing under a mountain? Because a lot of times in our life, Avodah Hashem is going to be standing under a mountain when we feel forced to do it, when we don't want to do it. You make katnus, he says, are days we're doing it just because we know we're supposed to do it. And because I didn't come this far just to stop. You may godless is when I see the end and I want to do it and I want to daven and I want to finish the parak and I want I get the pshat. And there are days where I'm doing it just because it's not worth falling behind. 
Because what did I come to Eretz Yisrael for if I'm not going to push through this man? But Kabbalah Satorah was Besach the Sahar. The original Kabbalah Satorah was in that state because what's going to make or break every one of us is not how we do on our best days, but how we push through the difficult times. How we push through when we're not feeling it. How we make sure to get to the end. Rak Yaseb al Korcho. Sometimes you just have to do it to keep pushing. This is what everyone has to do in the Yemei Katnus. Even when we're not feeling it. Even when it's not so great. I hate to tell you, even great people that you look up to, even your Rabbeim, even my Rabbeim when I was here, again, I had the schuss to be here with Rav Amital, with Rav Lichtenstein. What most impressed me about my Rabbeim over the years was not at their greatest moments. It was amazing to see Rav Lichtenstein's face at the end of the Yom Kippur. Rav Amital used to daven Ne'ilah from the Amud. Rav, uh, Rav Lichtenstein would stand five feet away from him. I, I can literally picture in my head the look on Rav Lichtenstein's face after Hashem Halalakim. Mamish Kamalach Hashem Tzavakos. But watch your Rabbeim when they're not so well on a given day. Watch them when they're struggling. Watch them when they get a little older and they have to push through and it's not so easy. A day when they don't really want to be in the base Madrash, but they push themselves to be in the base Madrash. Godless greatness is found on those kinds of days. So I wish you all many, many may Godless should have you may godless. But as life goes on, and as the Zman goes on, and as the Choref goes on, it's already getting warmer. I mean, compared to New York, this anything is bombing me at this point. Anything is amazing. But as the as the Choref goes on, I encourage you to see these days the grind of the of Choref's man. The grind of the Choref's man. Not the dancing Mishanichnas Adar, not the excitement of Elul. It's the grind of Choref's man. The reality is. I don't want to put down Kaitzman. It's very nice. Kaitzman is very nice. Elzman is so inspired. We all grow because of Chorusman. We all grow because of the longest man where it's cold, even in Eretz Israel, and it's not simple. But the pushing that you do to push yourselves for these years, especially when you're in Eretz Israel, when you come back, wherever you are, to push yourself and to continue learning and growing, that's what Emir Hashem will allow you to, 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 uh, to get to your goals.